We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. John. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take just a moment. You can be seated. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we come to you now, uh, and we, we don't just need human words. We don't need human wisdom. We don't need a little bit of inspiration, but we need words from you, words from heaven. And so we pray that you would come and that you would speak to us this morning and that you would speak to us wherever we find ourselves on the spiritual spectrum this morning. Some of us come and we are convinced of the things that we have been singing about, the things that we have been praying about, the things that we have been reading about, and our hearts are just filled this morning. And others of us come utterly unconvinced. Some of us, we, we can't even quite believe that we are sitting in a Christian worship service 
right now. We have so many questions, so many objections. Some of us come having once believed and we're just here trying to figure out if we could believe again. Father, we are all over the place, but thank you that you see all of us and you know just what we need to hear and you know just how we need to hear it and you know that while we are in so many different places, we are all in the same place, more broken than we know, more in need of your grace than we know and so we pray that you would come and speak and meet us wherever we are this morning and that you would speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed and we'd be different. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We are beginning a new series this morning called What is a Christian? And uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at, at that question. And it's, it's a really important question. Some of you, you are new to church. You're here. You are exploring Christianity. You have not crossed the line into faith in Christ yet. And this is the question you're asking. What is a Christian? What is Christianity all about? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And others of you have been around the church your whole life. And this is a question that we need to come back to over and over and over again. So what is a Christian? And I, I wonder how you would answer that question. You know, if you had to, to boil it down to one word, what word would you choose? Maybe you would choose the word belief. A Christian is someone who believes in God. You know, the New Testament says that even the demons believe in God. Uh, maybe you would use the word truth. You know, a Christian is someone who ascribes to certain truths or doctrines about God. Maybe you'd word, use the word spiritual. A Christian is somebody who's had a spiritual experience with God. Maybe you'd use the word moral. A Christian who's someone who, who uh, strives to live by a certain set of rules and commands. Maybe you'd use the word good. A Christian is someone who, who always seeks to do the right thing. Maybe you've had some really negative experiences with Christians, and you might use words like judgmental or narrow-minded. What is a Christian? Uh, what I want to suggest to you is that the Bible's answer to that question, if you, if you were to boil the Bible's response to that question down to one word, you know what it would be? Love. Did you notice how many times the word love showed up in these verses? 28 times. Uh, the book of 1 John is about five chapters long. It shows up, I think, almost 50 times in this book. Love is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And, and, and look at verse 8 in this passage. It says, whoever does not love does not know God. In other words, the way that you know you are a Christian is love. And you say, well, love for what? Love for who? Love for God? Love for your brothers and sisters in the church? and love for your neighbors in the world. Now, I just, I just gave you our outline for the next three weeks. And, and what's interesting is you, you, the reason we're starting in this passage is today is you see all three of those things 
in this passage. Love for God, that's verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Now, this idea of acknowledging, this idea of knowledge is not just knowing God with your head, but it's actually knowing him with your heart, loving him with your heart, love for God. But you also see love for brothers and sisters, and you get all of this one another language in, in these verses, and whenever you see that in the New Testament, it's talking about loving others in the church. Verse 7, verse 11, verse 12, verse 20, verse 21, all this one another language. And then you get love for neighbors and world because verse 9 and 14 says that Jesus came into the world because he loved the world and we're to do likewise. So what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who loves God, who loves the family of God, and who loves their neighbors in the world. But today, we're going to be looking at what it is that animates these other loves. There's a love that actually precedes those other loves. And it is what makes Christianity utterly unique. And you see it in verse 19. John says this, we love because God first loved us. Now John is saying something so simple and yet so profound here. A Christian is not simply someone who loves God and loves one another and loves their neighbors in the world. But a Christian is someone who is loved by God, who has experienced God's love for them. What makes a Christian a Christian is not our love for others and it is not our love for God. It is God's love for us. That's what we saw in this baptism this morning. And, you know, what's really interesting about this is that John is, is, it's the disciple John who's actually writing these verses. He wrote the Gospel of John as well. And when he writes his Gospel, he never, he never names himself, but he has a way of referring to himself throughout his Gospel. You know how he refers to himself? He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's how you refer to yourself. That's how you think about yourself. A Christian is not a spiritual person. A Christian is not a moral person. A Christian is not a good person. A Christian is a loved person. That's what it means to be a Christian. And what I want to do today is look at three things this passage teaches us about the love of God. Three things where it comes from, what it leads to, and how it can come into your life. So where, it, where this love comes from, what it leads to, and how it can come into your life. First, where it comes from. Now, twice in this passage, John writes this. He says, God is love. God is love. Verse 8, verse 16. Now, notice, John doesn't say God does love. He says God is love. Love love strikes at the very center of God's nature. Love is not simply something God does. Love is something God is. And it's, it is very popular. It is very popular to talk about God like this these days. I mean, everybody would say, well, God, if there's a God, God is love. But the question is, is how can John say that? And, and, and for that matter, how can anyone say that, that God is love? C.S. Lewis says, he says, when most people say God is love, what they really mean is love is God. 
Now think about that for just a second. I mean, we have elevated love as perhaps the highest virtue in today's society. Uh, love, love, we say, is absolutely central to, to the world working the way that it is supposed to work. You know, without love, you, you, have, you have no peace and no unity in the world. You just have division and war and hatred and death. Uh, without love, children do not grow up to be healthy, functioning adults. And it actually leads to the breakdown of society. You know, without love, you have no marriage. And without marriage, you have no children. And without children, the world would actually ultimately cease to exist. A world without love ends up being no world at all. Love is central. It, it, it is, it's not an addendum. It is, it is built into the fabric of the universe of how things are supposed to go and be and work. And the, here's the question. Wait a minute. What explains that? What explains why love is so central and why it is so built into the fabric of the universe? Let me tell you what doesn't explain it a purely naturalistic view of the world. A view of the world that says there is no God. That, that cannot explain why love is so central. Uh, Francis Crick, who is a Nobel-winning scientist and an atheist, he wrote a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And he, in this book he says this. He says, all of your joys and your sorrows your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are all, in fact, no more than the, the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecule. Now, all he's simply saying is this. He's saying, if you operate according to the belief that there is no God, that we are nothing more than the product of natural selection, then that means that everything about you, everything about you, everything you think, everything you, you feel, everything you experience, which includes love, is nothing more than just a series of chemical reactions in your brain that are the result of millions of years of evolutionary and biological processes that we have developed over time in order to survive. In other words, Love has not always been a thing in the world. Love was not there at the start. Love is merely a byproduct of the universe that came along at some point in time. And if love is a byproduct of the universe, you know what that means? It's not built into the fabric of the universe. See, an irreligious view of the world cannot explain why love is so central. You know what else can't explain it? A religious view of the world. Christianity is not the only religion that says love is a part of who God is. But it is, it is I would argue with you, it's a, it is the only religion that would actually offer a coherent explanation for why that's the case. C.S. Lewis, he says this, he says, all sorts of people and religions are fond of repeating the statement that God is love. But they seem to not notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Because love is something that one person has for another. Now here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Love requires community. And so if God were just a single person, 
if God were just one, which other monotheistic, Christianity is not the only monotheistic religion, Islam, Judaism, others, if God is just a single person, then before the world was made, God could not be love. How could God be love when he had no one to love? Love would have come along at some point after creation, which is actually ultimately no different than the irreligious view. <laughs> this says love is just a byproduct of creation and not something that's actually built into the fabric of it. Let me put it this way. If God were just a single person, love could be something God does. But love could not be something that God is. But if God were a community... If God were not just one, but if he were three divine persons, three in one, existing in perfect relationship and mutual joy and delight in and of himself, what does that mean? It means that love would not just be something God does, it would be something God is. It means that love would have not just existed after creation, it would have existed before creation. It means that love would not be a byproduct of the universe, but it would be built into the very heart of it. Isn't it interesting that in these verses we read this morning, which are all about love, they're some of the greatest verses you'll find in all of the Bible about love. John can't stop talking about the Trinity. Look at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He, meaning God the Father, sent his one and only son, Jesus, into the world that we might live through him. Verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Love requires community. And right here in these verses, John gives us a glimpse into the very first community of love, the Godhead, the fountain from which all love flows and comes. Jonathan Edwards writes it this way. He says, There in heaven dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one, in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. There in heaven this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three in one, forever flows forth in rivers of love and delight. And these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. We don't talk like this anymore. I mean, deluged is an amazing word. Like, deluged with love. Friends, a Christian is someone who has been invited into this divine community of love. Now, that brings us to the second point. What, what does it lead to? 
You know, what does this love do to you? What, what effect does it have on your life? And what this passage tells us is that there are two primary marks that show up in a person's life when they have experienced the love of God. And, and there's two of them. And they're a strange pair, actually. They, 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 typically, they don't go together. Typically, they're actually diametrically opposed. But the gospel brings them both together. And it says, if you were a Christian, if you have experienced the love of God for you, two things show up in your life, confidence and humility. So we don't think those things can go together. You can either be confident and not humble, or you can be humble and not confident. But how do you be both? The gospel says the love of God brings both into your life. Let's talk about the confidence piece first. Look at verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. John is saying one way to know that you're a Christian, that the the penny has dropped for you, that the love of God has become clear to you, is that you are no longer afraid of God's judgment or rejection or condemnation but you have total confidence and assurance that you are loved and accepted. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you hope God loves you? Or do you know God loves you? It's a big difference. See, a Christian is not someone who simply hopes God loves them. A Christian is someone who knows God loves them. And maybe you're saying, well, Pastor, you don't know the things that I've done. How could God love someone like me? Do you know who's writing these verses? John was one of the 12. He was one of the 12 disciples. And he wasn't just one of the 12, but he was a part of Jesus' inner circle of three. He got an up-close and personal invitation to Jesus' biggest moments. And, And yet... Remember what happened? He betrays Jesus. All of the disciples leave Jesus at the cross. And, and I mean, imagine the shame. Imagine the guilt that had come into his life. And yet, here he is in these verses saying, you can be confident. You don't just have to hope God loves you. You can know God loves you. Think about the apostle Paul. Paul killed Christians. And then he became one. And you know what he writes in Romans chapter 8? He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can be confident. And yet, at the same time, you're humble. There's a humility. Look at the very first verse we read this morning. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Now, the English translators are doing their very best in this translation, but it is severely lacking. Not that I could have done any better, but it is lacking. And commentators will tell you this. And the reason that it's lacking is because the the Greek word for great here in, in verse one is actually, it's a Greek idiom. 
And you know, idioms are not easy to translate. For example, we, we, have, a, we have an idiomatic expression where we say to people, break a leg. It's a way of saying good luck. Imagine if you went to China and said to somebody in Cantonese, break a leg. They would look at you like you are the cruelest person they have ever met in this world. I don't think they say, somebody tell me if I'm wrong. I don't, th I don't think this is a thing in China. Break a leg. I'm getting a thumbs up, so that makes me feel a little, I was starting to feel a little insecure. You know, can't read people's faces with these masks on. You're, all I get is this. And, you know, the, the literal translation actually here in verse 1 is see what country this love comes from. What this verse is really saying is from what world, from what universe is this love? How unreal, how miraculous. And one of the ways you know that the love of God is beginning to sink into your life is that there is this sense of awe and wonder that it seems too good to be true. You are constantly saying, how could someone like me know a love like this? Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British prime, he was a British minister in the 20th century. He died about 40 years ago. And he used to say that he would often ask people, are you a Christian? And, and sometimes they would say, of course I'm a Christian. And he said, whenever they said, of course, it was always a bad sign. He says, because if you really understand the gospel, you don't say, of course God loves me. You say, it is an absolute miracle that God loves me. There, there are two kinds of people who go to church. There are religious people, and then there are real Christians. And a religious person thinks, look, I'm trying hard. I'm, 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 I'm trying to obey, I'm trying to follow the rules, I'm trying to be generous, I'm making an effort, I'm trying to read my Bible, I'm making all of these sacrifices for God. And so you think, of course God loves me, God owes me. And there is no wonder, and there is no surprise, and there's no awe at the love of God. But for a Christian, there is this acute sense that God owes you nothing. That he owes you nothing, but that he has given you everything. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. How unreal, how otherworldly. It's a miracle. There is this sense of awe and of humility. You know, uh, Joel and I have been talking for the last couple months about this baptism thing. And there were moments where we would talk about the gospel and the love of God. And he would just go... Wow. Wow. And you see, that's when you know that you're actually getting it. When it actually seems too good to be true is when you are finally beginning to grasp it. And you see, the question is, why, why does the love of God produce this unique combination of confidence and assurance and yet humility and wonder at the same time. And they don't typically go together. Why is it that the gospel has a unique way of doing this? And that actually brings us to the last point, which is how this love comes into your life. Look at verse 10. 
This is love, says John. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John is saying something really important here. He's saying that the reason the love of God is possible in your life and in my life, the reason we can experience it and taste it, the reason we don't just have to hope but we can know is because Jesus came as an atoning sacrifice. This is, these are important words right here. An atoning sacrifice. What does it mean that Jesus atoned for our sins? And for that, we actually need to go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, which is everybody's favorite book of the Bible in here. I know it is. You all love it. You all love it. And you're all begging us to do a sermon series on the book of Leviticus one day. And one day we're going we're to do it for you. Your dreams are going to come true. Leviticus is that book where most of us, we kind of quit reading. You know, we, try to, we have this goal, I'm going to read through the Bible. And then we get to Leviticus and we're like, I'm going to look for a new goal, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tough book. Let me tell you, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. So many people read Leviticus and they say, I don't understand all of this sacrifice and all the blood and all this stuff in the temple. Let, let me tell you the point. In fact, let me just read to you from the very first chapter of Leviticus, verse 3. So that when you come into the temple, you are to offer an animal without defect. You must present it at the entrance so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. And you are to lay your hand on its head and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. And that was the sacrifice. The, the Old Testament ritual said that when you lay your hands on this perfect sacrifice, this sacrifice without spot and without defect and without blemish, that when you touch it, it represents you. That, that it takes your imperfection and you get its spotlessness. That, that, that your imperfection becomes its imperfection and its perfection becomes your perfection. And friends, that is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that you do not just see Jesus as your moral example. To be a Christian means that you lay your hands on him. It means to see him atoning for you on the cross where your sinful life gets credited to him. And his sinless life gets credited to you. Here is what atonement says. Atonement says that we are so messed up. We are so wretched. We are so far from God. We are so bad that Jesus had to die for us. That's what atonement says. And I want to ask you this morning, what is going on inside of you as I say that? Because I know some of you, you are deeply offended at that. I mean, if you're not a Christian, that probably offends you because you think, so bad, so wretched, so sinful. And if you are a Christian, at best it humbles you because you say, yeah. But you see, here's the question. What is it that can make you sore? 
See, that does the humility part. But what is it can actually give you confidence? What is it that can actually give you assurance? The gospel says we need both. How do you get both? Well, John says that Jesus is an atoning sacrifice. He's a sacrifice. You know, one of the questions I'll often get from people as a pastor is, if God really is a loving God, then why couldn't he just forgive everybody? Have you ever, have you ever kind of wondered that? Why, why, why the sacrifice? Why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? And the answer is that Jesus did not have to die despite God's love, but he had to die because of God's love. Would you think about this for just a moment? All life-changing love is sacrificial. Real love always requires sacrifice. And you know this. I mean, it's true with friendships. Your closest friends are the ones who have most extended themselves for you. And they're the people that you've most extended yourself for. Uh, It's true. Some of you are caring for elderly parents. There's a lot of sacrifice involved in loving a parent and caring for a parent. It's true in marriage. There is all sorts of sacrifice in marriage. I say to people, anytime I do a wedding, I say, you know, today is both a celebration and it is a funeral. It is the death of single you. And they look at me just like you're looking at me right now. But isn't that how the best marriages operate? It is where you have two people who are saying to one another, I, you don't serve me, I serve you. You don't sacrifice for me, I sacrifice for you. It's true in parenting, oh my goodness, there is so much sacrifice involved in parenting. You bring these human beings into the world, it takes them years to be able to say thank you. (laughs) Unbelievable, they're entirely dependent upon you. You do everything for them, everything. They expect you to be available at all hours of the night and your sleep is not sacred to them. And then they start to grow up and learn about music and then they just take control of your radio in the car. You don't get to listen to your music anymore. Parenting requires endless amounts of time and loss of freedom. And they're expensive. I mean, it costs a lot of money. Love. I love my children, by the way. I feel like I need to say that right now. (laughs) Some of you are like, wow, Brent's really working out some frustration this morning. (laughs) No, I'm just trying to make the point to you that real love always costs you. Always. It always entails sacrifice. And you see, if we have to sacrifice in order to love another person, then doesn't it make sense that God, who is far more loving, the fountain of love, would have to sacrifice in order to love us? If it costs us to love another person, doesn't it make sense that it would cost God to love? I mean, Jesus is sacrifice on the cross. You say, I don't get it. The blood and his... No, no, no. It was all about love. You say, well, love for who? Love for you. 
but for me. Yesterday, 20th anniversary of 9-11. So hard to believe that it's been 20 years. I know, you know, for those of us who are old enough, you, you, you just kind of relive where you were in the moment that you found out. Some of you were actually there. And so, uh, you know, we've all kind of been kind of reliving this the last couple days. And um, hearing again about the stories and the memorials and, and all of these accounts of what happened on that day. And, and the one that has really gripped me again this year is the story of Todd Beamer. Do you remember him? He was on Flight 93, United Flight 93, that actually took off in Newark and was headed to San Francisco, was headed to SFO. And that plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania when all of the passengers on that plane decided, and this was, this was Todd Beamer's words uh, to, the, to the operator that he was talking to, the emergency operator that he was talking to on the plane phone, was that they decided they would not be pawns in, in the, uh, the terrorist suicidal attack. And I, I read the transcript of that conversation, of his phone call, if you've never read it, is, it's, it's haunting, it is powerful, uh, it is sobering. And, and, and you read this, and Todd Beamer knew that he was about to die. He knew it, and he actually told the operator that. He, he said, we are not going to make it out of here. But what struck me was that what struck me about this conversation was who he was thinking about in this moment of sacrifice. Let me just read this for you. He said to the operator, he said, Lisa, will you do something for me? And she said, I'll try if I can, yes. He said, I want you to call my wife and my kids for me and tell them what's happened. Promise me you will call. Lisa responds, I promise I'll call. Beamer replies, our home number is 201-353-1073. You have the same name as my wife, Lisa. We've been married for 10 years. She's pregnant with our third child. Tell her that I love her. Tell her that I will always love her. We have two boys. David, he's three. And Andrew, he's one. Tell them that their daddy loves them and that he is so proud of them. Our baby is due January 12th. I saw an ultrasound. It was great. We still don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Lisa responds, I'll tell them. I promise I'll tell them, Todd. In his moment of sacrifice, he was thinking about his family. Who was Jesus thinking about in his moment of sacrifice? 
you. Look at the text. Verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you hear how personal that is? Paul gets even more personal in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says this, he says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. I want you to know something. If you are a Christian, that is true for you as well. Charles Wesley says it this way in his great hymn, Amazing Love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? The more you see Jesus' sacrifice for you, the more you will see his love for you. And the more you see his love for you, the more your heart will soar. The more you will be filled with confidence and with assurance See, the gospel says that we are so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but we are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. It says that Jesus loved you so much that he made atonement for you, and he made such atonement for you that now God can come in and he can love you. And it is a love unlike any other love in this world. It is the love you were built for. It is the love you long for. And it is the love that is offered to you today in this table and at this meal. And if you've never known it or you've never received it, you can experience it today. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you said Jesus. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, says Jesus. Drink this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not waited for us to love you, but you have initiated and you have loved us first. And you have made that clear to us by sending your son into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Help us today to lay our hands on him as we come to this table and fill us with confidence and assurance that we so desperately need of your love for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.